And you are on the panel, RNZ National, 28 to 5. Uh, lovely to have your company. Now back to the southerly blast that's wreaking havoc in the capital this afternoon. As you might have heard in the news just there, Wellington has uh, declared a state of emergency for Ophira Bay on Wellington's south coast ahead of high tide this evening. One of the residents who will be evacuating is Eugene Doyle. Kia ora, Eugene. Kia ora. Well, I'm, 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 I've got to give you some bad news here, mate. I'm not evacuating. <laughs> oh, right. You're not evacuating. No, but <laughs> OK, not a problem. Nice to have you on anyway. So, look, um, what has the council told you? Oh, well, actually, look, I, I haven't had this update. I, I heard on, I was just listening to you guys, uh, and you mentioned Breaker Bay. Uh, just just a bit of geography. Uh, Breaker Bay is around the corner from us, so... so um, we're, we're in Ophero Bay, very close. We're, 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 we're going to cop the same weather, more or less. So mm. I'm, not, I'm not sure about the nuances between Ophero Bay and Breaker Bay. You know, maybe that the Met uh, people have said, hey, the angle of attack is such that it's going to be particularly bad at... Um, Breaker Bay, but yeah, we're, we're that's right. Know, no, our, our, mistake, our mistake. Breaker Bay is evacuating. Apologies for that. But what are you? So what are you? What are you anticipating uh, in, in the hours to come, Eugene? And how how are you preparing? I guess. Sure. Well, I, I'm I'm preparing. By, uh, we've got the fire roaring and uh, the coffee's <laughs> boiling. The sea's boiling. Sounds good. Um, uh, uh, it's 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 pretty intense at the moment. But we're 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 happy as Larry here. Our community's you know really well prepared. We've been very well supported by the likes of uh, Met Service and Wellington Region Emergency Management Office and Wellington City Council. So so we're standing by. We know it's going to get pretty savage uh, around yeah. that eight thirty nine o'clock. You know, we have uh, picking about uh, six metre waves, long intervals, you know, 15 seconds to pick up a whole bunch of water and throw it at us. <laughs> um, uh, so so uh, we, we know it's going to be pretty big, even, even as I look out. I can barely look out my window, actually. There's so much sort of uh, rain and salt Gosh. and stuff fly, flying by. But, uh, yeah, yeah, the, commu- the community is sort of braced for this. We're, 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 we're toughies, yeah. Yeah. Nice to have you on, Eugene. Thanks for the update. Appreciate it. Isn't it uh, comforting for us Wellingtonians to know that in this time of emergency we have that paragon of leadership in Mayor Andy to shepherd us through? Yeah, we, yes, well, uh, that's the referral to, to what, uh, David, the infrastructure issues? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, general awesomeness. <laughs> Well, here's an idea for you. Why don't you put your hand up to be mayor of uh, Wellington? I have considered it, but I, it doesn't look like a very good job. Mm, right. Okay. It's 25 to 5. The panel are in Zed National. I think the best artist of all time, bar none, is George Benson. Oh, George. The best. That's that's what I'm gonna I'm gonna call closely followed by Prince. Anyway, that's oh, just that's just that's Prince. just for me. Uh, Anne says, I wonder if the teen who protested against petrol petrol vehicles walks or rides a bike to school at work, or does he go by car like most kids these days? So much for them walking the talk. Says a slightly jaundiced seventy year old who walked or cycled miles to school every that's day. That's weird to frost, get wound up frost, about something you've shine. imagined. Well, it's Anne's point of view. He's she's saying quite. Quite rightly, does he walk to school? No, but you, just because you participate in a society doesn't mean you can rail. That doesn't mean you can't rail against how it is. That's a re- doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> 
To this, the big five banks closed 84 branches and 249 ATMs in one year, a report from KPMG shows. Overall, the New Zealand banking sector includes smaller banks like TSB and SBS, went from 934 retail bank branches at the end of September 2019 to 850. ATM machines also declined 2,465 ATMs to 2,200 over the same period. So what is the future of the bank branch? And do existing branches have a future at all? New Zealand Bankers Association Chief Executive Roger Beaumont told a select committee on the issue, customers prefer the convenience of online banking or banking on the ramp. With us is a Massey University banking expert, Associate Professor Claire Matthews, who did a study on the effect of small bank closures in the late 90s or 2000. Uh, Claire, kia ora, welcome to the programme. Kia ora, Wallace. 84 branches and nearly 300 ATMs one year. Does that feel quite an amount to you? Oh, it is quite a substantial uh, reduction for both. Uh, we've seen a steady decline, but very, very small numbers over a period of time. In one year, that's quite a substantial number. Um, with the ATMs, it reflects the fact that the banks made the decision a little while ago to stop charging if you use someone else's bank. Uh, sorry, sorry, used another bank's ATM. Mm. And so it meant that they didn't have to have their own ATM there for you to use. They could say, well, I, we don't need you to provide you with an ATM. You can go and use Bank A's instead. And so you could reduce the numbers, which freed up a lot of capital for them. So the ATM oh. I'm not so surprised about. Branches is interesting because of the discussion they'd had with government to say we won't close branches because we're going to do these regional banking hub experiments. I know this is something important to you, Julia. Well, it's funny that I had to go into a bank the other day. Now, I haven't been into the bank for, I don't know, years, I guess. What a, what a rigmarole. I mean, right. it was just... It, it, honestly, it was the, I had to go back three times, put it that way, and it was something very, very simple, and I just thought, really? This is unbelievable. Um, I don't know what's happened to banking when you've got to go in, and that's a sort of... She didn't look at the documents. It was just terrible. Right, yeah. But I normally do everything online. Okay, so you do. What is the effect, Claire? I mean, you, you may have a town of around three to 4,000 people. I can imagine it's a community issue if a bank goes or another ATM gets taken out. And what did your study say? Uh, well, you find that people get very excited about it and make a lot of statements about, well, they're going to take their business elsewhere. In reality, if it's the last bank branch in town, then they really, they really haven't got any other options. If it's a second to last, then they can say, well, we'll go to the bank that's still got a branch. The problem is what they have found in a lot of these communities is that the last bank branch follows not long after, and so they're, right. they're no better off. And so if it is the last bank branch, they still jump up and down and say, I'm going to go to a different bank. But the other banks don't really offer them any advantage and they tend to be reluctant to actually make the switch because they perceive it to be complicated. Okay. David Cormack. I mean, I my default position is that all banks are terrible and I think that they operate under a social licence and provide a service and we see they make obscene profits which they announce every year so they should be forced to keep branches open in smaller towns now I'm not often a champion of the boomers quite often the reverse but a lot of them still use banks uh, and a lot of them struggle with uh, using online banking and they go to ATMs and that sort of jazz and so if you're going to make insane money like banks do then have bloody branches open in smaller towns so that people can use them and I was really appalled to see on that list that 
that Kiwi Bank has been one of the worst um, banks at closing down stuff because that's the government-owned one. What do you say to that, Claire? Well, the reality is that the fact that Kiwi Bank is doing it really does demonstrate that the public are voting with their feet and not going into branches. And you really can't justify the cost of maintaining a branch for the few transactions that you might have. And I think there was one in, um, quote in the story that's talked about a branch that did six transactions a week. I mean, if you're the person that works for that branch, it's got to be pretty boring to be apart from anything else. You do a little reading. <laughs> or listen to the panel. Um, yeah, so just just finally, uh, 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 Claire, uh, Dr Matthews, how do you feel the Banking Hub trial is going? Now, these are shared services provided by banks around a cluster of ATMs with one bank worker on site to oversee. Yeah, unfortunately, I have absolutely no knowledge of how those hubs are going. Uh, there's really been nothing released, and I was talking to someone today which suggests that there'll be nothing um, public until maybe the first quarter of next year. That's going to be really interesting. Uh, my expectation is that they probably haven't met uh, customers' expectations because they they are very limited in terms of what you can do, and I don't think they're going to be quite delivering what they were expected to deliver when they were set up. Mm. Nice to have you on the programme, Claire. Appreciate it. That is Associate Professor Claire Matthews there. But, uh, but uh, David, clearly you think that uh, they should be, there should be some sort of service left open in the small towns around the country. Yeah, I mean, when you say they can't justify the cost, their profits are routinely in the billions of dollars every year. I'm sure they can afford to keep the branches open. Mm. Um, David Cormack has made me lull. He shouldn't be invited back more often. Ask him if he still kept any of his poetry, and can we see some? Can you can you te- can you email me some of your teenage poetry, David, so we can put it up on the panel Twitter? No, not at all. So no? about eight years ago, my mother recognised that I perhaps wasn't going to be moving home as I was married, and she brought round a box of my stuff, and in that box was all my poetry that I had stapled together and I read it and I have never felt so much embarrassment. I don't get embarrassed easily, but this was just outrageously terrible. Let's start a petition. Those of us those of us who want to hear at least one of David Cormack's poetry, text us. They're two burned. one zero. See, you my can... producer, Amelia Langford, bring back David Cormack's poetry. <laughs> you, you, sh- you must have one half good one. No, none of them were good. They were all terrible. They all rhymed, though, and it really turns your melancholic poetry Poetry somewhat jaunty when you insist on rhyming everything. <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm going to get it out of you one day. I'm going to get. He's a got rid of it all. No, you have to start no, no, again. No, no, no. Uh, huge fandom coming through for Radiohead. Wallace OK Computer is the best album ever. Tom York's solo career with Harrow Down Hill is amazing. Says Sharon. OK Computer, nothing but a pile of dribbly cat attractant. It's not worth your ears, Wallace. But Jane in Mount Maunganui says, Wallace, it's modern-day Chopin. See, there Which, you go. Yep. Um, Maureen says, it's an amazing album and well worth listening to. Mind you, hearing a choice of George Benson, I'm not quite sure how much you will appreciate it, <laughs> which is a very, very fair point. Thank you for the uh, feedback on that. 13 to 5, the panel are NZ National.
Now to a subject that should probably come up more often in conversation, including here on the panel. Yesterday, one of our panellists, Connor English, talked about his experience with prostate cancer and urged other men to get the PSA test early. He did a um, he did a quite emotional um, opinion piece, uh, actually an article about it in the Herald just last week. We thought we'd follow that up with a co- uh, that conversation with Prostate Cancer Foundation CEO Peter Dickens, who is with us now. Kia ora, Peter. Kia ora, Wallace. So tell us a little bit more about the PSA test. Firstly, what warning signs would we look for? Um, with the PSA test, um, it tests for a substance in the blood called prostate-specific antigen. It isn't a test for cancer itself, but what it um, what cancer can uh, the, the kind of effects that cancer can have in the body, um, it will end up producing prostate-specific antigen. And if you in men, um, if you have an elevated level of PSA, then that's a sign of concern and something that you really should get t- um, checked out. Mm. Um, how, t- tell us more about how, how the test works. It's a simple blood test, um, and that's really all there is to it. Um, you go into your GP, they'll, they'll send you off to the lab, the, the blood test, uh, and the blood test will come back, and it will give you a, um, give you a score, uh, a number score. And in general, um, any score above four is something of real concern. Okay. Uh, the scores, but the scores can be widely varying in different people. All right. So one of the reasons why we got you on also, Peter, was because Connor said, you know, uh, he, he delayed it a bit. And four years later, uh, a, a doctor, his first doctor advised him, look, it's not that necessary. The second doctor four years later said absolutely yes. And it ended up being, you know, uh, you know a, a serious issue. But we did get a, an email from a surgeon who, who, who works, uh, I think it was Middlemore, who said, look, sometimes PSA tests can create unnecessary interventions uh, and be, beware of getting an early PSA test. Can you explain that a bit more for us? Well, the PSA test came in in the mid-90s and uh, a feeling did develop that um, men, with, well, men with benign prostate conditions underwent unnecessary invasive procedures because some of the cancers detected were slow-growing and unlikely to kill if they were left untreated. So if you did develop that even merely detecting the cancer that was seen as counterproductive. And PSA testing rates declined, and it wasn't recommended for asymptomatic men. But, you know, these things um, have come a long way in the last 10 to 15 years, and, right. cons- and, and those concerns now have largely been dispelled by improved diagnostics, such as I MRI see. scanning, and improved surveillance programs. Even the way that they grade um, prostate cancers now has changed from where it was 10, 15 years ago. Um, so, it also, um, it's you know, the, the testing rates vary very greatly. Um, but what is absolutely um, undeniable is that where, pro- where PSA testing levels are low, the outcomes for men are poorer. Okay. Yeah, David Cormack, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's really. Um I mean, men's health is, is talked about not not nearly enough because we, t- as men, we're kind of socialised into not talking about these sorts of things. Uh, and I think it's really crucial, just to, at the very least, to keep an eye down there on what's going on. Um, and at the first sign of something, go and get checked as soon as possible. Because, like most cancers, if you can get these caught earlier, the far more positive your prognosis is. Hmm. Well, my dad died of prostate cancer. He died in right? 80, mm. 85. Um, and, of course, there wasn't any um, 
PSA testing then, and he was misdiagnosed twice, and I think that was, you know, obviously didn't help either. So um, I think, yeah, look, I know Steve gets checked. I know he does everything he's meant to do, and I think all guys, you know, it's just something you've just got to do. We do all this stuff, you know, girls do. Sarah says, my father was diagnosed with prostate cancer, 47, given six weeks to live, managed to fight it until he was 51. Please urge all men to get tested as soon as anything uh, abnormal. So uh, I guess, uh, Peter, the take-home message for all uh, men listening to this this afternoon is... Go uh, is Go and have a blood test. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, as Connor, as Connor expressed really eloquently yesterday and in his, his article, which I would recommend that everybody has a look at, the um, prostate cancer is a cancer that can develop and develop and show no symptoms at all. You will feel asymptomatic. So our our view is that all men over 50 should look at getting a PSA test annually. And if you have a first degree relative that's had cancer, be it male or female relative, then you are at, you are at increased risk, and you should look at getting a PSA test from age 40 up. All right, nice to have you on the program from 40 Up. Right, Prostate Cancer Foundation, Peter Dickens. Kia ora. Uh, thank you for your time. A uh, bit, bit of response on that, actually, and also a bit of response on both Radiohead and George Benson, uh, interestingly. Uh, big fans of both coming through. Now to the issue of playground equality or inequality. As Justin Latif reports in the New Zealand Herald, two Auckland councillors are calling out low levels of funding for South Auckland community facilities and asks and ask, ever wondered why some parts of Auckland have nicer community facilities, look cleaner, and have more playgrounds than others? You're not alone. Auckland Councillor for the Manurewa Papakura Ward and former Manurewa, Manurewa Local Board Chair Angela Dalton is with us now. Angela, good afternoon. Hi, Wallace. So tell us more. How do playgrounds in Manurewa compare to some others in Auckland? There's quite a variety across the region and there's quite a number of reasons for that as well. So the legacy councils all had a different way of doing playgrounds. And um, out in the uh, old Manukau city area, sometimes it was just the slide and the swing and uh, perhaps the seesaw. So when you're left with that legacy, it's very difficult to um, get a better playground. Right. Now what we're seeing in some of the areas that are getting developments, perhaps the Waterview Tunnel area is a good example, where you get developments that are going to invest in some destination playgrounds as part of their contribution to tunnelling through an area. And that's where I'm from originally, and I kind of test to that playground. It's quite extraordinary, and that's, I guess that's why it kind of breaks my heart, Angela, and why we chose this piece to know that some uh, young children will grow up in playgrounds that aren't fit for purpose. But looking at the figures here, according to analysis conducted by the Auckland Council, Manarewa has the largest funding shortfall of any board based on its population and community needs. It would require almost $350 million just to catch up with the better resourced areas. Why is why so little resourced? So the, the way to explain that is that all of the local boards are funded the operational and maintenance costs and service delivery costs for the assets that they have in the area. So if you go to perhaps Howick, they have many different assets in the area. The Howick Village, they, they will have more libraries perhaps. If you come back out to Manurewa, under the Manukau Legacy Council, we were just we were the next cab off the rank to get investment in community facilities. It didn't happen. We went to the super city, and so what we have is what we have, and we have the operational budget to go with it. So 
so the answer is to invest in the capital infrastructure for those local board areas who are so far behind, Manurewa in particular. I mean, the, the next worst board to us is Rodney at... Um, and they're $200, $200 million uh, less than us. Gosh, um, well, let's go to uh, Julia first on this. What, what do you think of this inequity? Uh, it's just incredible. I don't know how it happens. I, I seriously, how can you let something lag behind like that? I mean, I like where it's interesting because I'm, I mean, I, I, I have great grandchildren now, but dri- when I ride past, there's two parks where I ride past, and one they've just done up, and it's amazing what they've done for the kids. It really is, and they've even got the um, shades and everything so kids okay. don't get sunburnt. And, but there's so much effort went into to making these areas, these play areas and parks, lovely for the kids. David, what do you think? I mean, I don't know the Auckland geography terribly well, but it kind of, based on my reading, looked like that there were areas of so lower socioeconomic areas that were being underfunded, and mm. so you just kind of had uh, a vicious cycle there of areas that didn't have a lot of money get less money, mm. and so the problem perpetuates, and mm. sometimes that can be because of a problem that starts with R and ends in aceism, but I don't know, it just... It, it just baffles me. I think that children's playgrounds are the greatest things on earth because as a community we've come together and created these things that are free purely for the entertainment of children and I just think that's just magical. And I completely agree with you on that particular point there David and this is why we brought it up so what's the answer and what's what's a quicker fix so we can get these playgrounds up and running like some of the better playgrounds across Tomek and Makaurau? And it's broader than playgrounds too. It's the community facilities. But partnerships are great. This morning we did an opening of a beautiful playground in Wurri, which is in my ward, and it was funded by Panuku, who are doing development there. So as long as we can get partnerships within the council family, good things can happen. But the other answer is to rationalise the other areas if they've got three art centres. Do they need them? Well, so that's them down. getting a bit of response here. James says, I was curator for the Monorail Community Art Gallery and had zero budget allocated for exhibitions. So clearly, Angela, this is, um, uh, 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 this is a, maybe a structural issue that needs to be looked at. And it is, and it's so complex, it's taking way too long. We are, uh, how many years into the super city now? More than 10, and the funding equity has been this way since the beginning. So all of those boards, like Manurewa, have really been trying to stretch their dollar as far as they can. And there is an unfairness in that, and a huge unfairness in that. Um, operational costs out this way are a bit higher for us. We've got, um, we've got some pretty robust kids, and they're pretty hard on equipment. So sometimes the renewals cost a bit more as well out this way. So all of those things factor. Kia ora, Angela. Lovely to have you on the programme. Uh, and uh, thanks for joining us. And a big, big hello to my old hood, Manurewa. Uh, that is Angela Dalton there. Um, but needless to say, uh, Julia, something's got to be done about this uh, inequity, huh? Yeah, well, I just, like where do, you, I, where do you live again? Well, I'm at Beechlands. So these right. these ones are in just between Beechlands and Maraitai. So, um, and we've got a beautiful area there. We can walk and walk your dogs, take your kids, run around. It's gorgeous. Well, you David know, so Cormick... Look what the fairies brought in. A bit of George Benson for you and I. Not me. Don't heat me in with your crappy taste. Hey, hey, hey. Um, Consider this an education, David. Consider this a musical education for you. Uh, That is David Cormack and (laughs) Julia Hartley-Moore. Kia ora. Thanks for joining me.